This podcast is funded by Ted Dintersmith, the executive producer of the acclaimed film Most Likely to Succeed, and the author of the best-selling book What School Could Be. The game that I designed was called Superhero Sidekicks. So basically in the game, uh, the children get to be sidekicks for a superhero and to help them with their own um, personal flaw. So through the game, the kids learn um, important lessons such as personal hygiene, um, teamwork, storytelling, expressing emotions, um, the importance of environmental care. Um, so the game kind of allows you to be the teacher and the student at the same time. The hurdle we had to get over was the interface. So we knew there was a very specific uh, constraint. Hey everyone, welcome to the What School Could Be podcast. I am your host, Josh Rapoon. Before we start the show, please check out all the resources at whatschoolcouldbe.org and our global online community. Simply install the What School Could Be app on your mobile device or navigate to community.whatschoolcouldbe.org. I hope to see you there. The subject of today's episode is not a school in the traditional definition of the word. It is a learning hub, a learning studio, a series of experiences and creative moments in time, if you will, that lives on the outer edges of education, but should, in my humble opinion, be the DNA of every public, private, and charter school in the U.S. and the world. Today, we travel to 450 Massachusetts Avenue in Cambridge, Massachusetts, to see and hear about New View Studio, a place so remarkable it could be called the eighth wonder of the education world. So what is New View? The simplest definition is that it is an independent, non-traditional school where the next generation of young innovators are developing the skills, knowledge, and confidence to solve real-world problems through project-based learning. NewView was built on four so-called pillars, which include empathy, design, innovation, and impact. NewView also presents itself as having a set of core beliefs, which are we are more engaged when we are solving meaningful problems. We should actively pursue new ideas and diverse perspectives. Students thrive when they set their own personalized learning goals. And collaboration is key to addressing complex challenges. At NewView's website, you will read the words, at NewView, we're proudly reinventing high school education. These are not just words on a web page, my friends. These words are an expression of values suffused into every nook and cranny of the newviewschool.org URL. To take us through the story of NewView today, we have one of its co-founders, Saba Kole. At the time of my prep for this episode, Saba's co-founder, Saeed Arida, was in Costa Rica, so we decided that she would be the voice of New View's story for this episode. Saba Kole is an architect and urban designer turned education and technology entrepreneur. She received her master's in urban design at MIT. As the co-founder and chief creative officer at New View Studio, Saba leads an innovation center for middle and high school students. 
New View's focus on creativity and experimentation sets the stage for students to collaborate with experts on projects ranging from new medical technologies to interactive games to brainwave-generated music and art. For this episode, I asked two Education Reimagined colleagues, both former guests on this show and fans of New View, to weigh in on its place in the pantheon of 21st century learning approaches, which are having an outsized impact on young learners. Robert Landau wrote, quote, if you take a peek at New View's website, you'll be met with a stunning array of impactful projects that vividly demonstrate how New View bridges the gap between education and the broader community. These are not hypothetical assignments, they're relevant endeavors that weave New View into the fabric of the wider community, truly making the world their classroom." End quote. Evan Beachy wrote, quote, "...the brain's ability to learn depends on engagement. If you're in a comfortable, safe, beautiful environment, surrounded by connected people, and you are working on genuinely fun and relevant projects, you learn more. It's an irrevocable, scientific, and cultural truth. Every time I visit New View, go into a New View X class with our native Hawaiian students, or chat with Saba, Saeed, or one of the fellows, the same thing happens. I leave hopeful and terribly jealous. New View Studio student work addresses real-world problems in a creative and relevant way that always leaves me inspired." End quote. And now, here's my conversation with the co-founder and chief creative officer of New View Studio, Saba Kole. Saba, welcome to the What School Could Be podcast. Thank you for having me, Josh. Happy to be here. So Saba, to say your growing up years were geographically complicated, including India and Orange County, um, mm -hmm. is to make an understatement. So I, I want to focus on one sequence in those years. You wrote, and I quote, I have always felt that deeper learning happens through experiential learning, and learning doesn't happen inside the walls of school. The year when I was eight, spent being homeschooled by my mom in India, was an eye-opener for me. So, Saba, what made this year eye-opening for you? And in what ways was Saba shaped by that eighth trip around the sun? <laughs> well, I think it would be helpful maybe to start by sharing some context of how we ended up there, which was quite unexpected. We would often do, my family's originally from India and specifically from Mumbai and then also the southern towns, which are just south of Mumbai. And, you know, they've changed dramatically over the last number of years. But predominantly at that time when I used to go when I was much younger, these were considered villages, gaos, as we call them. So they're a very small town places where everybody knows everybody, you know, you can walk down the street to pick up whatever vegetables you might want and need for the day. And people actually come and are selling vegetables to your going door to door selling vegetables. Mm. So I used to actually come 
to India from the U.S. like almost every summer for a couple of months during our summer holidays and summer break to visit family. Mm. But what ended up happening when I was eight years old, which was, I'd say, a big pivotal moment for my entire family. Mm. My father unexpectedly ended up in the hospital. He had a bleeding ulcer, Mm. which was predominantly caused by stress from his work environment. He had a very intensive work life. Some days I would barely even see him because he'd get home. He'd leave early in the morning, try to fight kind of LA traffic, Mm. commute for two hours, two and a half hours each way. And by the time he would get home, we'd be in bed sleeping, my brother and I. Mm. He ended up in the hospital and on the brink of passing away. And it, it obviously naturally shook him. And thankfully he got through that. And Basically, at that moment, it was it was a moment of reckoning for him. And he decided, you know, let's just all pack up our bags and go to India for mm. a number of months mm-hmm. and just have some time away, re- reconfigure our entire life. And and so we we essentially did that. We sort of packed up my brother, my mom, my dad and I, we all kind of closed off at, at our house in Orange County and flew over to India with the idea that we'd be there for the year, essentially. Mm-hmm. And my mom, interestingly enough, she was a teacher back in India. And so she used to teach a lot. And she was a teacher's aide in California. So we would see her at my brother where we were going to school. We'd see her every now and then. She would be in different classroom than where my brother and I were. So she had some experience, obviously, teaching. And so we we're there in India for about, ended up being about nine months, nine, 10 months. Hmm. And we spent the vast majority of that time between my mom's village, which was called Roha, hmm. and my dad's village, which is called Nangao. And distance-wise, they're not very far apart, maybe 30 miles or so, but because of just trying to get over some hills and just very rudimentary roads it would take a few hours to get from one location to the other mm-hmm. but we sent, spent significant time in either place and what was really interesting about being in both of those environments one there were as i said like extremely extremely small town environments and everything in terms of produce was all locally grown Mm. and both of the towns they're close to the sea so there's a lot of seafood fresh seafood and you know it just those years that time period was so formative because i got to experience for a period of time a completely different environment which was very collective you know, in in the mm-hmm. household, in my mom's, you know, house, there were my grandparents, my mom's siblings and kids were all staying in one big house. And it was almost like our parents weren't our parents. <laughs> mm. There was this, there was this mindset that you're being raised by a village. And I never, I kind of heard that term, but it never really struck me until I was old enough and being eight years old at that time that I really started to understand that notion of it takes a village. Mm-hmm. And, and so, so that was really fascinating first, just to develop my own relationships with my cousins and with my grandparents and my aunts and uncles. But one of the, I think, the most extraordinary pieces was just getting a sense of life that was completely different to my day-to-day in Orange County. 
this connectedness with neighbors. You could go outside at any time of the day and just, you know, mm. open doors, like literally open door. You're, you go to your neighbor's house and the doors open, you come in and everyone sort of immediately offers you something to eat and you can't leave unless you eat something. Mm. <laughs> and the sense of immense sense of like welcoming mm. and wanting to ensure that you are given attention and truly acknowledged as as a person. Mm. And it was, you know, obviously vastly different than my life in Orange County, where we knew our neighbors, you know, I lived in a townhome at that time. So we are walls connected. But I remember it out back in Orange County, I would look through my bedroom window and see our neighbors in their backyard, like gathering and having a party. But we were never invited to those parties and vice versa. We didn't necessarily invite our neighbors to our parties. Right. But you know, th there was this sense suddenly when I was in India, it's like you go, there's a wedding happening, there's any event, like it's the entire village is invited. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, so I got to kind of see that immediate sense of how important those relationships were inside the extended family, but also outside the extended family and what mm. it means to just formulate relationships with other people who had slightly different lifestyles than what we had in our home, even in India, and to get a sense of that and be invited into such an intimate space of our neighbor's space and, and spend some time there, mm. I thought was just incredible, incredible. Mm. Wow. I just think that that's such a marvelous environment to learn in. And it's almost the ideal environment that we, we're all talking about where learning can happen. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we used to have, we spent quite a bit of time at my dad's home, which is essentially on a farm. So we used to harvest rice and just seasonally be able to see the land change over time and getting it ready for preparation for growing the rice grains and then harvesting of the rice grains and then just growing different vegetables. I used to take care of the goats at my dad's house. You know, we were constantly harvesting a lot of our coconut. It's a very rich area, which has a lot of coconut in the mm. area. And used, mm -hmm. it was fascinating to see every part of the coconut being used for, not just for eating, but just for creating different types of house coverings that can be used during the rainy season and to be able to create different types of products from the palm leaves. So it was just really fascinating to be in an environment which was so conscientious and aware of how to live harmoniously mm. with, with nature and with other animals and to be more self-sustaining. And, and, and I think one of my, you know, the formative moments during that period of time were also, we'd have different workers helping with cultivating the land. And some of the folks would walk from neighboring villages, almost, you know, they spent about an hour and a half walking from their village to come to our house. And I remember there was one woman, her name was Mangala Maushi. She used to come in the mornings and I used to wake up early in the morning at the crack of dawn. I don't know what eight-year-old wakes up at the crack <laughs> of dawn, but I used to wake up, wake up with her because she used to make fresh rice-based rotis. They're, mm. we call them chalaki roti. And it's made out of rice and it's kind of like a tortilla and you eat it with different vegetables and seafood. And so she kind of taught me how to make that rice roti mm. and you just make it on your hand, no special tools by any means. And, you know, there's a special technique that you use and it's all 
kind of cooks on the fire. Mm. And so just those moments of kind of someone teaching me how to prepare this very special rural <laughs> piece of food was for me, again, the most eye-opening experience for me. Yeah, that's awesome. In Hawaii, Sava, we have a phrase, it goes like this, it's makahana kaike, which means in doing one learns. And mm, it's mm-hmm. very much a driver for a lot of the conversations that are happening here in my home state around experiential learning. Mm-hmm. And it just sounds like that period of time was very much a makahana kaike time for you. And I'm recalling mm-hmm. now, as, as you describe this, you know, I've said this before to other guests and other episodes that when I was about to head into kindergarten, my mom fell and broke her leg. It wasn't a bad thing, but, um, you know, I mean, it was for her, but she recovered from it completely. But she made the decision to keep me out of kindergarten and homeschool me mm-hmm. instead. And mm-hmm. at that point, who would have called it school? It was just me and my mom. And we did everything yes. together. We went to the zoo together. We learned how to read mm-hmm. together. We cooked together. We did everything together. And I would never give that up ever for a million dollars. I wouldn't give up that year with her. And even as young as I was, I remember it so clearly what happened during that time. And Mm -hmm. so, yeah, that's awesome. That's an awesome story of being back in India. So we're going to slight left turn here, but kind of staying along the same lines. You shared with me that since a young age, you've loved to paint and that painting brought you lots of personal joy and a sense of agency. Before you were 18, you said you had already painted over 30 pieces. So I have a multi-part question here. What did you paint and what does it mean to be a painter? And what Mm -hmm. do you mean by painting bringing you, quote, a sense of agency, which is a word being used Mm -hmm. a lot in education these days? Yeah, absolutely. And I'll, I'll make a little link from you know, the, the stories that we were just talking about, about my time in India. Yeah. But even during that time in India, there there were two things that I absolutely loved doing. One was I had a diary for a number of years. So I used to use my diary as my little secret space where I could express my thoughts, my just memories and experiences from the day and what really mattered to me. And, and the second one was my passion for painting. And mm. I think those were my two spaces where I could reflect on the world around me. And, you know, it was my own per- space to have a personal dialogue. Mm-hmm. And painting became this space where I could express questions that I had about who I was, struggles that I was facing, questions that I had about my cultural identity and life in the U.S. and all the complexities around that. Growing up as a young woman in Orange County with this interesting heritage and how to, you know, connect it to where I was. And also just really abstract kind of concepts that I would have about you know, what the future could be. Mm. And so I ended Mm -hmm. up producing, there was a lot of landscape work, some abstract portraits, and then a ton of also just more abstract paintings. And I tried to also experiment a lot with mediums, different mediums going from using pastels, chalk, acrylics, Mm. watercolor, and then also just 
kind of different types of papers and different types of materials that would make their way into more of my mixed media pieces. And then I started using light and incorporating that into my painting. So the paintings sort of became more installation pieces. So it's sort of a slow evolution that mm. happened over, over that time. And so I think that my thoughts that would be embedded in my diaries would kind of inspire the thoughts that would then get represented in the paintings that I was working on. Mm. And so I, I can look back sometimes at some of these paintings and think, oh yeah, I remember I, remember I, I created this painting and I could still sense the emotions that I was going through in that moment in time. So mm. in a way, my paintings are a diary in and of themselves, being able to see and experience what I was experiencing at that moment in time. I love that. And you know, you're already making a connection for me. One of the videos that you provided me that I could watch in advance of today got into something, and, and we'll get into the new view in a little bit, but it got into something called mixology. And I was fascinated by that. And I'm thinking that you were a mixologist at this point, very early, right? You're, you're sort of <laughs> yeah. starting to figure out how to mix and match things. And that's that's a really neat idea. And that sense of mixology and experimentation really gets at the heart of what it means to be a painter, right? You don't just yes. like transmit what you're looking at onto a canvas. It's a whole thing. It's a process, you know, mm -hmm. and that's, that's really cool. Okay, so yeah. then that takes us in another slightly different direction here, but I think it's kind of along the same lines. You, you're the first guest in 116 episodes who's given me a chance to talk about the remarkable film, My Octopus Teacher. And I've, I've watched it twice, maybe three times, and I'm blown away by it each time I watch it. So mm -hmm. we will have to set aside other books and films that have influenced you, Sherlock Holmes and the Story mm -hmm. of India, for example, and wonder out loud why this octopus moves us and what questions mm -hmm. this film raises. So in the film... A free diver learns from an octopus and develops a relationship with this octopus. So how does the octopus become your teacher as well, Saba, as you're watching the film? And I know I'm kind of making an assumption here, but I think mm -hmm. it's based on solid ground. So, yeah. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think for me, the octopus is a metaphor for, for my life and how I see learning happening in all of us. And it comes down to this you know, realization that when I, when I was specifically watching Octopus Teacher is that learning comes from everywhere. If mm. we preconceive that I can only learn from my teacher or I can only learn in this particular type of environment, I think we close the door on, on many places and experiences and opportunities looking a thousand feet in the air as well. This is how and why even the Reggio Emilia model yeah. for me really connects to the octopus teacher and Reggio Emilia, which was started by Loris Malaguzzi. And, you know, he talks a lot about finding our way in the forest and thinking of school as a living organism. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Something that moves and changes and 
you know, we don't have a singular path. But at the end of the day, learning, as I said, comes from different places. And Mm -hmm. just being open to that possibility can Mm -hmm. allow us to feel things that we never would have expected feeling, to change our perceptions about things as we never have, Mm -hmm. and to just become more conscientious about the environments in which we live. And the octopus teacher, I, I never would have imagined like watching that movie and being <laughs> like sobbing, sobbing. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but, you know, I think that tells us when we're able to truly open ourselves up, we start to feel. And I think the moment that happens, that's when we can start mm. to change our perspectives or form new perspectives about what the world's about. And that's why that film really was incredible to me because it connected so much, so many p- parts of what I think about the learning process and and finding learning happening in, in the most unexpected places. Right. So that's actually a perfect segue to my next question, which is actually going to be about Reggio. But before we do that, I just want to share with you that a few weeks ago, I had the chance to spend some time in New Zealand with my wife. It was a long planned trip. And we were in Te Papa, which is the National Museum of New Zealand in Wellington, And on the top floor, I discovered an installation, which is essentially a kelp forest hung upside down from the ceiling. And Mm. into the kelp, the the kelp itself was actually coated with sort of a linseed oil so that it had Mm -hmm. a shine to it. And the artist Mm -hmm. had embedded lights in the kelp. And Mm. so as you walked through the kelp forest, which was hanging down from above, it was just this wonderland. And I thought, I just, I can't even describe, I I just kept thinking, who thinks of things like this, you know? (laughs) And of course, maybe that person was inspired by my octopus teacher, I have no idea, you know? Uh But I just, I just love the idea that with an open mind, learning happens in the most unexpected places. Mm -hmm. And so that leads then to my next question and and the last question before we take a break. Last week, I had the opportunity to experience in person a post-sabbatical presentation by an elementary school educator who will be a guest on this show in 2024. Her name is Sarah DeLuca, and she spent Mm. this past year with her family in Italy exploring schools grounded in the pedagogies of Reggio Emilia. And she teaches at a school here in Honolulu that is aligned with Reggio. So, Saba, Mm. you listed Loris Malaguzzi's poem, The Hundred Languages Mm -hmm. of Children, as influential in your life. So my question is, and this is, hang tight here. If I were to spend a day walking around New View, watching and listening to the work going on, where would I find the visible evidence of the hundred languages of children, albeit high school aged children? Yeah, you know, that poem is amazing because the moment you read the poem, it opens up your mind, especially if you read it as an adult, that yes. it taps into a bit of the sensations that you felt as a as a child and how uninhibited you feel and the world just feels open of possibilities. And I think that's the sort of spirit that even when we created New View, we were hoping to have that you should never walk into any sort of educational environment and see that every single person is creating the same thing or working on the same thing. Because if you kind of think about it, every one of us has a different set of experiences, different set of interests, different life experiences. And 
for us, and I think especially looking at Malaguzzi's poem, it's just representative. I think it's just talking about the realm of possibilities that you can see in a child mm. that aren't limiting. And when you walk into New View, I think and has been really amazing is you see each student's interest, their their visions, their desires, their hopes embedded in the projects that they're working on. Mm-hmm. And they're all very different from one another, even if they're part of a similar studio where they're investigating a topic. But ultimately, the projects that they're working on are driven by the issues that they've chosen for themselves to explore. And I think that's like a very empowering part of what we were hoping to create and create through those experiences that students are having at New View. It's a space where they can have that agency and creative license to really explore Mm -hmm. topics of of interest and, and dive into them. And it's also, I think, a space where there's an inherent culture if something isn't quite working for for a student let's say it's a studio that the students in and for whatever reason they're just not interested in it there right. have been so many instances where you know our team the coaches try to figure out or create a different pathway based on what they're seeing and understanding about that student and i think that flexibility and comfort level with the unknown i think is you have to, that has to be a prerequisite mm-hmm. in any sort of educational environment. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the, I think, cultural pillars that's always been part of New View is at the end of the day, we need to create a space where the students are driving their learning process. And through that, you know, it can be the environment is not set in stone. And mm-hmm. I love even Malaguzzi and some of his conversations will say that life has to be somewhat agitated, a bit restless, yes. somewhat unknown. Yeah, right. <laughs> and and I think that that's really hits it on the nail. Mm. Because if you want to be open, you need to be open to the changes. And because you, do, you can't just expect like, this is how things are going to develop with even a specific project that a student is working on. But really, if you really keep it open ended, they might develop the project in a way that you never expected. And right. so I think that's a really core piece of the environment that's within you view. And, and so you'll get to see all different expressions of the students through the projects that they're working on. And then you'll also see the documentation, the actual like physical artifacts, and they could be physical, they could be digital, but you'll see sketches, you'll see models, like physical models developed at all scales of fidelity, really rough early stage conceptual models of something that they're designing and building to to really refine high fidelity model that where they are using different types of materials. And so it's really incredible to see the actual physical artifacts and because that's where you kind of where you see the students thought process and you can see how it's developed over time. And so for us, that documentation is very, very important and the reflections and really the story of the students process from the very start to where they ended up and all the twists and turns in between. So that's what you'll see and experience while at New View. Yeah, that's awesome. And you know, listeners, if you're thinking in this moment, oh, I don't have the money or the time to go to Massachusetts to see New View, 
You actually do. You have the time, so just jump onto their YouTube channel. Yes. It is a wonderland, and you go down, and you actually can walk through the classrooms and see what's going on. You'll see a young woman suspended from some sort of a contraption that's kind of rotating around while she's playing a game, which I stared at for a really, really long time. And so we, (laughs) you know, in the spirit of the hundred languages of children, the hundred languages of teachers that's stripping away all the things that seem to block you from exploration and wonder and inquiry in your own pedagogy and and just take advantage of the digital record that's been created by New View, mm-hmm. and, and that's that's fantastic. Yeah, and I would I would add to that really quickly if you you mm-hmm. know can yeah. direct folks even to our Vimeo page, and it's it, it's interesting that yeah we don't always update our Vimeo page, but that one has purely student based projects, and sometimes I myself go go into the rabbit hole of going back in time, yes. looking at projects yeah. that students worked on, short films from India, from the U.S., from all the places that we run New View programs and to see the issues that the students have been interested in and how they've visualized those stories ultimately. Yeah, that's great. And I've actually been lining up a lot of those links for the show notes. So when we publish this episode, those links will be there for our listeners. So that's awesome. Hey, everyone. We've been talking with Saba Gole, an architectural urban designer turned education technology entrepreneur and the co-founder and chief creative officer at New View Studio. If these episodes with super creative and innovative educators like Saba put fuel in your tank, give us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hi, fellow educators. I'm Steve Shapiro. And like you, I'm excited about the possibilities of what school could be. Please check out my podcast, Experience Matters, where I talk to guests ranging from big national thinkers like Daniel Pink and Tony Wagner to recent high school graduates about the most profound learning experiences of their youth. Then we dig into the implications for how we can reshape schools to produce powerful breakthrough learning for all of our students. Education can take many forms, but whatever form it takes, experience matters. Hey there. Are you interested in hearing weekly conversations with authors, leaders, and practitioners at the forefront of learning and education innovation? Then you'll love the Getting Smart podcast. This podcast amplifies the incredible work being done by some of the most innovative minds in education. Learn new leadership styles, new technologies, new frameworks and mindsets, and get the fuel you need to stay motivated and curious. Together, we can empower all learners to thrive. It's available at gettingsmart.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi friends, this is Toy Hirschman from EntreEd. It is my great honor to uplift this excellent podcast, What School Could Be. As always, we are super excited to support innovation in education. We've been lucky enough to feature some of the incredible What School Could Be educators on our podcast. If you are looking to be inspired by entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial educators and other great minds from across the world, check out the EntreEd Talk podcast and please like and subscribe and leave a review. Thanks for tuning in. Hey everyone, we are back with Saba Gole, an architectural urban designer turned education technology entrepreneur and the co-founder and chief creative officer at New View. So Saba, you directed me to a link, which is designmuseumfoundation.org. So I went there 
and immediately fell into what felt like a deep well of craziness, meaning example after example of New View Studios work and student work and what they're doing. And at one point, I got lost exploring an exhibition of New View's work in Hawaii, my home state, specifically at Kamehameha School's Maui campus. And from this Maui exhibition write-up online, I'm going to quote parts of two sentences and then ask you a question. So here's the, the first sentence, essentially. Quote, each studio has potential gateways to ground students into real opportunities that are out in the real world, end quote. And then I read a few paragraphs later, quote, this next studio, Living Architecture, brings them into the realms of material technology and movement and asks the question, what if our built environment could respond to environmental conditions and anticipate the needs of users, end quote. So at this point, I realized, Saba, that I had been thinking of New View solely as a space, like high-tech high almost. But in fact, New View is as much an event, a moment, a place in time. So learners move from studio to studio as if moving from one thematic learning moment to another. You can see my struggle here as I'm trying mm -hmm. to figure out like this is like stepping through some sort of door that opens up and you go into this wonderland that that where time mm -hmm. is relative. Anyway, so do I have this right? And could you explain this more to our listeners? Yeah, this was a big part of our vision when starting New View back in 2010 when say David and I were conceptualizing how can we create a school that really changed the learning experience to mm. have a lot of depth and to be ultra focused and experiential. Mm. And mm -hmm. in order to do that, we realized, you know, the conventional model where you move, we have an hour long block for math, then you move to an hour block of biology, and then you have another block of humanities. This constant shifting was just not allowing for the time needed to go to allow students to go deep into their learning process and learning experience. So I think one of the big first, you know, stepping back, one of the big pieces that we explored through New View was completely changing and reframing the schedule. Mm, and so what, mm -hmm. what we did was create this model where students would be a part of a studio, which was an interdisciplinary course, and they would spend about two weeks intensive just on that one topic. Mm. And then two weeks later, they would move on to a different topic, which would have a different group of students and a different coach or set of coaches leading the experience. And we would curate all of the different studio topics and work with the coaches at that time as all guest coaches and to come up with interesting topics that were relevant in the world. Mm. And that was, you know, we had never seen that model anywhere. We had never <laughs> experienced it. So we were testing it out in a way. And I still remember I all of this, you know, that first year studios, I still remember all of them that that took place. But what was phenomenal is that in each of those two-week periods, you you felt like as a student, as a coach, that you were just coming into this 
incredible space and learning about something that was just opening your minds in so many different ways. And I'll give you an example. Okay. One of the studios that we ran was called Picture This. And there's a long story of how this sort of studio emerged, but essentially, you know, I had I had seen this incredible TED talk from by this artist named Raghava KK and just decided to email him out of the blue and because he had this incredible talk called The Five Lives of an Artist, which really connected with me personally. And it really talked about kind of learning and this process that you're constantly like reinventing yourself through Mm. each experience. And through that experience, you're learning something about yourself. You're sort of shedding who you were and becoming somebody else. And I just found that that was so incredibly pertinent and relevant to even the the type of model that we had constructed where every two weeks you work on a studio and you go deep into it and you're kind of connecting your hand and your mind and your body and like kinesthetically you're building things and then you'll move on to a different studio where you're using different maybe digital tools another studio you're building like a physical product another studio you're building you're creating a film Mm. and so anyway so he got my email out of like the tens of thousands of emails that he had received. And it really like intrigued him. I talked to him a little bit about what we were doing at New View and would he come and be a guest coach? Wow. And he agreed. And he, I had this, you know, we had a brainstorming session about the type of studio that we wanted to create. And so he came and he, and he taught this studio, which was called Picture This. Mm. And as part of that studio, the students were riffing off of some of his work, but essentially they were, you know, creating these interactive stories that could be experienced through the iPad and make them so that they had like this sort of how to engender multiple perspectives through the telling of a story and through use of this, you know, technology of using the iPad. So that's a little bit of what they were diving into. Mm -hmm. But through that process, I mean, you, you can imagine there are students in there who've never, ever like sketched, painted, don't consider themselves an artist by any means. And then you have students that are, you know, more familiar with painting or sketching. So you have the full range of students. And through that, you know, two-week experience, the coach sort of brings them into this world and also gets them to see themselves as all the possibilities. Like you don't need to learn, know how to draw. You can sketch and just that ability to free your body and your mind to be able to take on these new skills and and see yourself as an artist like you've never seen yourself as an artist i think it was embedded in part of that studio Mm. and so you know there we had about i think it was about 15 students in that studio and there was about seven projects all of our projects happen collaboratively in small teams so students work together that's a big part of the model is learning how to navigate kind of the complexities of coming up with ideas with enhancing your ideas through through that partnership with your teammate right so you know students came up with like seven incredible projects at the end of it and they each were tackling a different type of story and telling it through characters and beautifully designed stories and narratives. So it was really incredible. So imagine that studio happens (laughs) and then they are, you know, at the end of that period, the next two weeks, it's a completely different studio where, you know, the studio could be around developing pedal powered juicer (laughs) which is a which is a project that came out of one of the energy-based studios so 
So you have that period of time to completely to go deep, explore, kind of discuss things about the world with your teammate, with your coaches, have conversations and dialogues with your peers across the different projects and ideas, be able to present your work, critique, peer critique, and learn. And then two weeks later, you're moving on to another different experience. And, you know, what was the most incredible part of, and I remember this from the first year of all the studios that we ran and we tested out this model was I had every single coach that came up to me and said, as much as the students are learning, I'm learning. And I (laughs) think that is a sign of a really successful learning environment is that there should be learning happening everywhere, constantly across the board. So that model, I think, has always been a model that has, we learned a lot from that. And over the years, we've done different iterations of that model, lengthening the two-week period to now it's like about three and a half, four weeks, but still trying to maintain that you know, intensive studio experiential model. Right. Wow. So as I listen to you, I'm just realizing, you know, I've had so many conversations with previous guests about my own educational experience, which I've often painted in a a very negative light. But I'm realizing that over the course of middle school and high school, that as I trudged unhappily from chemistry Mm -hmm. to biology to history to whatever, I actually had four very vivid new view experiences over the course of those six years. And Mm. I I remember them absolutely clearly, and now they're even a little bit more clearly based Mm -hmm. on on what you were just talking about, which which feels really good. It's like I can start to feel you know, that I didn't lose six years (laughs) of my life, you know, at this traditional high school. Okay, so you've actually answered my next question, which had to do with the intersection of art, design, and technology, which is, you know, a a banner on your website. So I'm going to move to the next question, which is, again, at your school site, at the landing page, we read, Designing Real Solutions to Meaningful Problems. So mm-hmm. what defines a meaningful problem? <laughs> I, was, I know you're going to mm-hmm. talk about who defines the meaningful problem. And how, mm-hmm. do you, how do you train learners to be meaningful problem finders? And what, mm-hmm. what defines a real solution? Like, this is really interesting and complex stuff, but I can feel the agency in the question itself, right? Because you've already yes. talked about how there were times in the past, probably in the very beginning, where you and your team might have set up the project, but really mm-hmm. you've moved more towards the students figuring out what yes. their projects are going to be. Absolutely. And I think to answer that question, there's a lot of different ways to approach that. One of the, I'd say, most successful way to arrive at at creating an experience where the students are able to unlock the problem that they want to explore Mm -hmm. is by working directly with clients or working Mm. in partnership with different organizations who help to create that context around which students can 
ask questions, learn more, do their research and understand what's happening, what's taking place, and then be able to kind of develop their the problem. Because there is that direct feedback and that's present within the studio. So to give you an example, we ran this studio back in the days, I think this was this was a number of years ago, and it was called Form Bionics. And we had mm. partnered with a local organization and specifically that was working with athletes and dancers, you know, performers basically, who had experienced some type of physical injury, mm-hmm. cerebral injury that led to them being, you know, their their physical mobility being impacted. And so our students were working specifically with these individuals through the organization. And we had, you know, a project, a team working with a specific individual. Mm-hmm. And it was mainly, I think, for us, helping the students understand how to ask questions where they could, you know, get meaningful context to then start to problem solve and figure out like, what are, what are the, what is the problem that we're trying to solve here? And so a lot of the work went into helping the students essentially come up with and being really understanding sort of how to ask questions also, I think is a big part of kind of the work that happens in a lot of these client facing studios is not coming to the table with assumptions, but asking questions in such a way that you are truly creating an open atmosphere to get, you know, a whole range of answers and have that conversation and dialogue. So often all those client-based studios, there, there'll be a Zoom session, or if that client's able to come into the studio and talk directly with the students, it gives them a pretty good understanding of the unique circumstances that that individual is facing, and then come up with interesting solutions. And so there was a whole range of different projects that emerged from that type of studio. Mm -hmm. And there was one group that was specifically working with an individual where it was very difficult for that individual to use the computer and specifically use a mouse just to use the different navigation tools because they had limited limited sort of hand mobility and those fine motor skills were very difficult so they they created a tool that could interface with the computer that allowed for that navigation to be really simplified and and so that's the type of project there's no way yeah, <laughs> that you yeah. can sort of abstractize that that problem yeah. Without kind of diving into the specific challenges that the individual is facing. So we found like those client facing studios are incredibly powerful in sharpening the students problem de- like detection uh, abilities and problem refinement and, right. and then offering a really rich context to which they can then iterate and, and, and develop those solutions. And, and sometimes Obviously, it's difficult to find a specific client, but oftentimes then we'll work with like organizations or organizational partners. Sometimes we'll work with, you know, we've had a number of projects that have worked with the city of Cambridge and we'll have local representatives come and present to the students. And mm-hmm. and those also offer a different avenue through which, you know, again, to hone in the, the student's ability to, to, to problem solve and, and problem define, I would say. So there's a lot of different ways. And then in the example that I gave where where we had the artist Raghava KK come in and do the studio, 
sometimes the guest coaches also bring in kind of issues and the context of some of the problems that are in their work, in their body of work, and they'll bring it and they'll bring into the context of the studios because they have that real world connection. And then through that, they'll bring in guests related to that particular topic. And and so I think that's another vehicle that we've used to, to kind of connect that work. That's awesome. And listeners, I've already included the Form Bionics video that Saba provided for me in the show notes because, wow, that is a piece of storytelling. And bring your Kleenex box because the final 30 seconds of that film is if you don't cry out loud, you're missing your heart <laughs> somehow. Yeah. That's just an yeah. incredible thing. So I, so I, I love that. And I, I love the process of how you connect with the community, which is very much on people's minds right now as we're thinking about reimagining education. And that feels so authentic. So this is a perfect segue to the final question before our second break. And it kind of puts a capper on what we've been talking about here about NewView. Again, from your site's landing page, we read, quote, where students learn to love learning again, which suggests students at NewView, and I'm painting with a broad brush, come having experienced learning environments where they did not love learning. So let's Mm -hmm. say, Saba, that there is this kid named Josh, and he is a 10th grader at a large college or bust private school. And so far, he is mostly a disengaged learner with terrible grades. But when he Mm -hmm. is not at school, Josh is a curious cat who loves to build rock walls with his dad, do wood carvings, and spend time in the ocean and a million other things. And Josh and his parents, who are TED Talk fans and happened on your 2012 San Jose TEDx Talk, arrange a meeting with you and Saeed. So what are the first steps in coaching and guiding young Josh to love learning again? Like, how far do you go with him on this journey towards loving learning? And when does he need to set sail on his own to love learning Mm -hmm. or not? Yeah, absolutely. And we've had, you know, the story of Josh is like so many students <laughs> that we've had at NewView over the years, honestly. Yeah. I mean, you just change the school that they're coming from or taking a break from school or yeah. or some other scenario. But I think that was disheartening and a big reality check is just realizing immense potential that is yeah. present in young people and how a number of you know learning environments are just not able to see young people flourish given all of their incredible creative strengths and curiosities and so we've had a a number of such students come and and i think you know the the first step is letting them know that their grades aren't a reflection on who they are but it's actually all of that outside work and that outside passion and the outside curiosity, that's more of a testament to who they are. And mm-hmm. I think for early on, even with NewView, like our admissions process was not, please send us your transcript, but it was actually, is there any kind of projects that you're working on that you'd like to share? What are you most passionate about? Yeah. Those were the types of questions that we were asking. Right. And just to be able to tap into like, are there you know facets of them that would really resonate with the type of model that we've created at NewView. And so, you know, once we were able to see that there were those transferable pieces, then students would come and then be a part of these studios. That was kind of that beginning of that process for the student to really 
dive into kind of who they are as a learner and and almost systematically try and unlearn all of the the kind of pieces of learning that they've learned in in their other schools and then come here and learn in a yeah, different way. Right. And so it would be a process. And I think what's also incredible and has been incredible for us over the years is that we've realized that every student has their own timeline. They, yeah. they, I yeah. think that question of like, when does the change happen or <laughs> when we can't define it. And mm-hmm. I think as long as as educators, we are interested in sort of uncovering each of the inherent possibilities that are in every single child yeah. and recognizing that that could happen after, you know, a few months within different working through different studios, or it could be like, it could be a year and a half or two years or three years. So, and, and just being, I think, really committed to the student, I think has been a very strong tenant that has been a part of, part of New View. Yeah. We've seen students who've also like really fought the process in a way. And it didn't quite make sense to them until a couple of years in. And then there was truly like this moment of, I see it, like I am the one who is leading this process forward. And I can, I can see how this is happening for myself. I understand how I learn. I understand how I work best in like a team environment, how I work best with my colleagues and my peers, how I can stretch myself, how I can give good feedback to my peers, you know, provide constructive feedback to myself and reflect on my learnings and challenges and growth areas. So I think that process is is inherent, is happening at each stage. But those moments of realization, sometimes they're very incremental. Mm, sometimes mm-hmm. it's like, you can see it like unfolding before your eyes like yeah, within a wow. two-week time period. So yeah. so I think it's it's a process that's very individual to the student. Yeah. And before we go to break, I just I just want to say, Saba, that in some ways, and I'm speaking to little Josh, my young self, lo those 50 years ago, in telling him in some ways the, yes, 99 of the 100 languages have been stripped away, but there are places that will put those 99 languages right back again. Yes. And that is the thought, even here at age 65, that makes me think I can continue to learn and love learning. I actually have completely fallen in love with learning, but it's taken my mm-hmm. whole lifetime to get there. And really, in a way, it's kind of it's kind of what you're doing is putting those 99 back again. And that's just a lovely thought. It's a lovely thought. Yeah. And so perfect way to go to our second break. So hey everyone, we have been listening to the co-founder and chief creative officer at New View, which was born in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Stay with us. We'll be right back. This is Guy Kawasaki. If you want to learn how to be a remarkable person, please check out my podcast, Remarkable People. I interview people like Roy Yamaguchi, Margaret Atwood, Jane Goodall, Stephen Wolfram, Stephen Pinker, Ariana Huffington, and Steve Wozniak. The point of the podcast is to help you become a little bit more remarkable. To learn more, go to remarkablepeople.com. Thank you. Aloha, my name is Aaron Shorn, a previous guest on this very podcast. I am also now head of growth and community at Hawaii's own Unruler. Unruler is a collaborative mobile and web platform that accelerates innovation, grows culture and community, and celebrates learning. Learners post multimedia, tag their learning, 
and through comments are able to work together asynchronously. Each post is a moment of learning that forms the foundation of a joyous learning journey. We can be found at unrulr.com. Mahalo. Are you ready to shake things up in the classroom? Then get ready to blast off into the future of education with the Teacher Nerds podcast. Join Joe DiPaolo and Ron Nover as they share their own experiences, as well as talk with guests who are experts and innovators in education. From engaging teaching techniques to the latest educational technology, this podcast is a must-listen for anyone passionate about the future of learning. Subscribe and get ready to learn with the Teacher Nerds podcast. Hey everyone, we're back with Saba, the co-founder and chief creative officer of NewView, and one of the most creative guests I have encountered so far as I prepared for these 116 episodes. So Saba, you provided me with a wonderful, wonderful note to NewView, an email, I presume, from a parent about her son. And to summarize the note, the parent, Kate, wrote to NewView to express two very important points. First, she expressed a sort of I-can't-look moment upon receipt of her son's evaluation forms from NewView, in part because she had been told over and over in other school settings that her son, quote, did not measure up and other kind of awful things that were said. And she also expressed to NewView that when she did open the evaluation eventually, it was like experiencing magic at seeing what I'm going to label as a growth transcript. So growing, according to New View's evaluation, her son was excelling at, which brought Kate to tears. So let's talk about this idea of a growth transcript and the ways that New View releases young learners from these traditional fixed points that they've been subjected to. And that was the same for Josh when he was in school. And so what are your thoughts about growth over time while in a new view mm -hmm. studio experience and how do, for example, public exhibitions of learning play a role in evaluating mm -hmm. growth over time? And, you know, how do you report growth to any interested parties? You know, to answer this question, I have to go back in time a little bit in, okay. in terms of the model that influenced how we basically constructed new view. Our, our model, which is a studio-based model, is heavily influenced by the architectural studio model. And that's where the link happens to my background, my co-founder Said's background, where both architects and studied in mm -hmm. the architectural design studio model. Right. And, you know, in that model, it's the work that happens within the studio. The true evaluation of any student's learning is happening through what we call descrits, which are the moments in time when the professor or sits down with the student and discusses the project and is giving feedback, is hearing the student's thinking, and it becomes a vehicle for really understanding student growth mm, and progress. It. Okay. So that's one one space. We also have mid-reviews and the final review or exhibition, which is a very, you know, it's made to be, it's theatrical. Mm, you know, you have mm -hmm. to go up on stage in, in a <laughs> sense. You, put, you pin up your work. It's all visual. It's usually on a wall or, you know, there's physical models around. There might be films. So you use these different mediums to, you know, express and, and, and share and demonstrate 
your process and how you arrived at your solution. And that happens through this final review and final exhibition. Mm-hmm. And so there's, mm-hmm. and that's also an opportunity for more critique. And oftentimes outside experts are invited to these final reviews, sometimes even for the mid reviews to offer feedback without being fully invested in the, in the studio or knowing all the details. So it offers an outside perspective, which is really important mm. to really fuel the process with different perspectives to help enrich the student learning experience. And so that feedback-rich environment is really important. So these end up being, in addition to at the very end, the production of a portfolio, Uh, which in essence is sort of your visual documentation of the process that you've taken. So these kind of technical pieces in a way of the studio are those moments of evaluation, assessment, and understanding the growth and learning of a student. Mm. So I felt that it was important to include that because so much of that theory and that understanding of that model has really been a big part of how we've envisioned NewView and really constructed the model. So there is a ton of, you know, these descrits which are happening on a daily basis between our coaches and the students. The mid-review, which happens where all the students gather and they present their work to one another. Mm. And then this sort of final review, which happens at the end of every two two week studio or, or now four-week studio. But we also have a big exhibition which happens at the end of every trimester, which the students are able to showcase their work to a broader audience. So wow. parents are invited. We invite outside guests. It's it's a big event. Mm-hmm. It's a celebration of their work as well. And so there are these kind of core moments during the studio process, which act as a way for, again, students to reflect their their pauses. And then that constant kind of documentation that is happening on a daily basis, which then leads to their portfolio, is another part of kind of the evidence of learning for that's embedded in the portfolio. Right. And so these elements have been a core part of our studio model and new views methodology. I think the, the newest piece I'd say that we've added, which has changed since the beginning of time, outside of these review periods and the exhibitions and the portfolio, is the actual assessment model. And it's been an iterative process, which I think is very exciting because, you know, mm. you want to improve the assessment model so that it's truly being used as a tool for growth and yeah. not just using it as a means to an end to assess. And that's the end of the day. And the student necessarily doesn't see value. And because of that, we've gone through a number of iterations and kind of joint collaborative sessions to redesign that assessment model with the student's input. And just right now, the school team, the New View Innovation School team, I know they're they're working on a brand new model. And that really hones in on this idea that students are setting their own goals with respect to the projects that they're working on in collaboration with their coaches. And then these goals are the ones that are being assessed and the evidence of learning, the documentation that they're doing on a daily basis, you can see how their goals are reflected in the artifacts that they're that they're developing. Wow. So there's a really strong cohesion there that connects with our model. Yeah. So we kind of we do this in this way where it has a lot of meaning for for the students. Each of those moments, the descript serves a different purpose, the mid-review serves a different purpose, the final review sets a different purpose, and then the exhibition serves a different purpose. And the portfolio, as I said, is really kind of that story of the student's process. And they use 
that portfolio. I think why these elements, you know, that relate to the student's growth are so important are because mm. they're not just important within kind of the school environment, but you know that something is important when it's a valuable tool outside of the educational model. Yes. And they can use that portfolio yeah. for an internship. They can use yeah. that portfolio for their college admissions process. They can use that portfolio for a work position for their own personal, you know, websites that they're building out that allows them to see their own journey. Yeah. So I think these things, when they serve a grander purpose beyond just being something that's useful within the school, I think it's also very telling. And that for us is, I think that real world relevance piece is really important, not just in the projects that the students are working on, but in every single facet of what we're designing, if it's assessment tools or the portfolio tool, we really feel it needs to have value outside of MUVIO as well. That's awesome. You know, before I go to my next question, I'll just share really quick that way back in 2016, I did a screening of Ted Dindersmith's film, Most Likely to Succeed, which is really the inspiration for this podcast. And I know you've you've seen it and thought a lot about it. And, and just prior to that screening, I'd been working on a project, a sort of biography of my father. And I found a folder with all of my middle and high school grades in it. Ah. And so these were just slips of paper with letters on it, you know, mostly C's and D's with an oh. occasional comment, especially one I remember, which was Josh struggles to write. I was like, wonderful. That's a nice oh. comment. And so basically I just copied them into a packet and then I copied the packets. And at the end of the screening, I dropped them in the laps of all 30 people who had attended the screening. And I said, what do you think about this? And maybe we'll spend the next 45 minutes creating a new kind of transcript. And they were stunned. Mm -hmm. They were just stunned <laughs> at what they were looking at. It's like, who would do something like this to a kid? And I'm like, hey, this yeah. is what we're all doing, right? We're, yes, we're all doing yeah. this, right? So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, so as we come down to the end here, just a couple more questions. And I want to come back to you and move away from New View a little bit. So... Saba, there is TED and TEDx, and there's also Inc., mm -hmm. which is TED's sister conference in India. And you shared a wonderful, compelling, moving story with me about how you became an Inc. fellow, which allowed you to highlight New View and your own challenges and learnings as an educator. And Inc. was also the time when I believe you met Shiloh Suleiman, which mm -hmm. led to some really wild and crazy creative stuff at Burning Man, which I just mm -hmm. couldn't even believe what I was looking at. And so what is that story of your fellowship at Inc. and, and all that followed in its wake, especially the Burning Man installations? It was, I mean, I think it was an incredible series of events that led me to get connected into the Inc. community. And it, mm. it, interestingly, I think it all started from that picture, this studio, which was with Raghava KK. And he was part of the Inc. community. And he really encouraged me, you know, you should apply for this Inc. fellowship. And, you know, I think it just was a space for me to kind of come full circle because I definitely really wanted to kind of come back to my roots mm. in India and be connected to the community of thinkers who are doing incredible work in all different fields across India. And so 
I thought this would be a you know incredible opportunity. I, I applied and got accepted, and and it just so happened it was coming at just the the tail end of this other studio that I had kind of helped orchestrate, which was called Learning Lab Idia, mm. with some of our students at Newview, where we were working with Sesame Workshop and having our students design kind of these interactive, collaborative cell phone based games for mm. learning different life skills. Yep. And so that, you know, led to our students going to India and, you know, all of that work, I think ultimately led to my selection as, as an Inc fellow there and the work that I was doing with Newview. And so what was really incredible is with being part of this fellowship community. And I got to meet so many incredible as I said, artists, other folks in the education space, folks doing, you know, having startups that were dealing with energy issues, clean water, I, I mean, you name it, it was incredible. And that was where I connected with two of the fellows at that time, Shiloh Suleiman, who's an incredible artist. And she has the Fearless Collective, which works with super vulnerable communities all around the world. And Rohit Dixit, who was more of a scientist and product designer. And the three of us, you know, unexpectedly were hanging out in our, you know, in our hotel room where, where the conference was taking place. And we were just kind of talking about our work and all great creative endeavors. Not really, we didn't set out like, this is what we're going to design or build. We're going to collaborate to build this biofeedback installation for Burning Man. But yeah. it just came about through the connection of my interests in more installation-based art and community-based art and Shiloh's background, working with directly with communities on the ground, and then Rohit's background and work in studies and meditation and studying monks and meditation and, and changes in their brainwaves. Mm. So we took kind of our combined interest and just through conversation, we're like, maybe we, we can design something and create an installation where we can bring a lot of these concepts around biofeedback and connecting people through heartbeats and visualizing heartbeats through an installation that we can design for Birding Man. Yeah. And we'd never seen anything like that before. And it was, you know, the start of the availability. I think technology was a big part of this. We started to see a lot of these lower cost kind of heart sensors, mm, different types of sensors yes. that were entering the market that yep. you'll see Arduino was making and using Arduino to be able to track those signals. And then, you know, all types of physical computing devices, which are just because we're becoming more accessible back in 2014. So I think it was a combination of a lot of those factors that allowed us to envision something like this and creating something like this and, and fundraise mm, <laughs> with yeah. limited means to be able to design something kind of extraordinary. Yeah. And so, you know, we created this concept for these 25 lotuses that where people come and sit together in pairs and their heartbeats, you know, they put their hands up to a Hamza hand the lotus responds and visualizes each person's heartbeat. And the idea is that over time, our bodies naturally synchronize to yes. each mm -hmm. other's breathings. Mm -hmm. And that really forms a strong connection. And this happens, as we know, pretty naturally between mother and babies, where they're naturally, when their breathing starts to synchronize naturally. And so how can we model those really intimate moments of connection with strangers that allow us to open up ourselves and 
be more receptive in a in a community mm. environment. So yeah, that was that was the you know that was some, that was some of the thinking behind that installation. Wow, that's just so amazing, and I'll include a link to that installation. It's actually a Facebook post, Shiloh's Facebook post, and I'll, I'll include a link to that. I just watched that for such a long time, over and over and over again, and it kind of took me back to that installation in New Zealand where the, mm-hmm. you know, the kelp forest. And then it <laughs> yes. kind of, it, it made me, you know, just listening to you now, it made me think about the octopus teacher. And I just, mm-hmm. you know, I'll just lay bare here that the intent of this podcast is to put stories out there that will inspire teachers so that kids will have opportunities to do things like this. And I just, mm-hmm. I just love that. I love the collaboration and how creativity can, can, sort of come out of the most unexpected situations where just three people are starting to talk to each other in a fellowship. Mm-hmm. You know, that's really a great story. Mm-hmm. So awesome. So Saba, I, I love to end episodes by having my guests do a shout out to giants upon whose shoulders they stand. And these are folks mm-hmm. who were coaches and guides and mentors and advisors and sponsors and even just supportive friends. And in your case, you named your parents, which is wonderful and timely. Because I've been thinking a lot lately, I'm not sure why, maybe my age and turning 65, about the gifts my mom and dad gave me as I was growing up and figuring out my journey in life. So who are your parents, Saba? And, and in what ways do you stand upon their shoulders? What, what gifts did they give you that you carry in your proverbial backpack each day? Yeah, I would say the biggest one was my parents both gave me the freedom to be whoever I wanted to be, which I Mm. found to be immensely powerful, but also immensely (laughs) just frightening because, you know, there's a big weight to that. Yeah. But truly they never suggested or said that, you know, you should do this or you need to do this or become this. And on the contrary, it was the only thing that they said is whatever you're going to do in life, do it the best you could ever do it. Mm. And that always stuck with me is I think that ethic of putting your all effort into what you're trying to achieve is really paramount. That it's it's not going to be success, it's not going to be measured by what you do, but truly how much effort you put into something that's really going to be the most valuable piece. And I think I've seen that expressed time and time and again, Mm. not in just my own personal experiences in life, but when I see even my students, you know, the most fulfilled I've ever seen them is when they spent hours and hours and days and days and weeks (laughs) on a project. And it's truly like that experience that one goes through is the most enriching part of growth. And and so I, I think my parents for instilling that sense of freedom and the sense of responsibility, likewise, in what I was doing. And I know they came to the, you know, they came to the United States. They had limited, very limited resources when they started up. And and I know it was very difficult for them just trying to, you know, bring a piece of our culture and into a new place and raising their kids all, all alone. So it was, it was immensely difficult. And those, those years were very difficult. Both of my parents worked and try to make sure that their kids had that freedom to choose and that and freedom to make those choices on their own. Mm. So I think that that sense of agency, as I felt, is a gift. And I hope to always be able to give that gift 
onwards to to other students and to my own kids and 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 I think it's also very difficult because now as a parent sometimes you you know you have your own wishes and have had experiences in life and I go back to even what Malaguzzi was saying sometimes you know you have to kind of redefine your role as an adult and yeah. sometimes step back and allow the individuals you know young person to create their own pathway and that's something that we, you know we have to continue to try and remember even as educators yeah so yeah. that's that's been a big i think for my parents I, and i'm truly appreciative and for what they were able to give me Wow, that's awesome. And so what we'll do is we'll dedicate this episode to your parents and we will express our gratitudes to them because the gifts that they gave you, you're now passing down to hundreds of young learners. And what a marvelous thing that is because I totally agree with you. It's very much, it's like, wow, freedom is amazing, but whew, boy, the weight that it carries with it, right? You just, all of a sudden, mm -hmm. you are charting your own course. And I think that's also what my parents did as well. I think I was the youngest of seven kids, so I think that I'm not sure that freedom to do what you want was completely in their DNA, but by the time I came along, they were definitely sort of out of energy, you know? Yeah. And so I had the gift of being the youngest and, and was cut loose. But I also hear you very clearly when, you know, I think about my own daughter, who was my 101st episode, which was surreal. And just thinking about all those moments, mm -hmm. Saba, along my timeline with her, where I was stepping back slowly but surely in moving at the speed of trust, letting her chart her own course. Mm -hmm. And that's just such a beautiful process to go through. So that's awesome. Thank you, Saba's parents for all that you have done. And Sava, thank you so much for this conversation today. Wow. Every single time I just end up with so much fuel in my tank. Actually, it's more like an electric charging station. Let's not talk about, you know, gasoline, but it just keeps propelling me forward. And boy, you've propelled me forward today. So I really appreciate you. Thank appreciate you, both of you, you and Saeed, and for what you have created. And I just hope our listeners are inspired. So thank you so much. Thank you, Josh, and thank you for going down this long past journey and diving into it. I really appreciate you for doing that. Yeah, it was a blast. Thank you. Our editor, creative consultant, and sound engineer is the talented Evan Kurohara. Our theme music is created by a remarkable pianist, Michael Sloan. Producer of 12 albums with over 100 songs, Michael Sloan is featured in Apple Music, Spotify, and all major music platforms. You can also find his work at his YouTube channel. Michael has listeners in over 100 countries and 2,000 cities. We'd be grateful if you would support these episodes with leading-edge, innovative, and imaginative educators and students by giving us your own rating and writing a review wherever you get your podcasts. This series is sponsored by Education Change Agent Ted Dintersmith, executive producer of the award-winning documentary film Most Likely to Succeed and author of the best-selling book What School Could Be. Please join the What School Could Be global online community by going to community.whatschoolcouldbe.org or by downloading the What School Could Be app from your favorite app store. The What School Could Be podcast is brought to you by Josh Rapoon Productions. Send your feedback to josh at whatschoolcouldbe.org and follow the show on Twitter at WSCB Podcast. Finally, listeners, 
One of the most important things we can do is to bring kindness and compassion into the world. For sure, we need a surplus of both right now. Thank you so much for listening.